Good morning and welcome to this seminar. My name is Ingrid Rusta and I am the acting director of the Norwegian Forum for Development and Environment. And we are one of the co-organizers of this event together with the Norwegian Rainforest Foundation, the Council for Africa, Amnesty International Norway and the future in our hands. Child labor in the cobalt mines in Congo. Textile workers in Bangladesh who every day fear a new Rana Plaza. Indigenous people in Guatemala who are raped and killed because they won't leave their land to mining. Environmental activists in Brazil who are killed because they protest against forced moving. And pollution and deforestation. These are only some of the examples that show why we need a human rights law for the business sector in Norway. Today we will hear more about two of these cases. First, I'll give the word to Mark Dunnett, who's the Dummett, sorry, who's the head investigator for Amnesty International on DRC. The floor is yours. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Morning. Um, let me just get this set up. Yeah, so my name is Mark Dummett, and I'm researcher on business and human rights at Amnesty, at Amnesty International. Great. It's working. Um, <coughs> so I'm, I'm going to just present... Um, so I'm going to present um, some work that um, colleagues and I have, have um, been, been, been working on over the past few years. It's really a case study to illustrate... Um, the way, well, I think the research we've done um, illustrates the way in which uh, companies whose products we all use and, and rely on can unintentionally um, cause and contribute to human rights violations if they fail to uh, conduct human rights due diligence in line with international standards. And I think our research has also shown that these, these companies, their brands, I'll go into who they are later, but these brands which we all, all rely on, how difficult it is now for these companies to extract themselves from this situation because of that initial failure to conduct human rights due diligence. Uh, the case study, as we heard in the introduction, is, 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 on, is on cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, Cobalt, most of the world's cobalt comes from the DRC. 60% of the world's cobalt comes from the DRC. Um, and it is the, uh, the, the darker colored stone. The one, on the one on the other side, the greener one, is copper. It is mined along with copper in the southeast of the country. Um, from Lubumbashi um, and these towns which are dotted. Uh, dotted there, Lubumbashi, Lakasi, Kambov, and Kolwezi. The history of mining in the DRC goes back to when the Belgians first colonized um, the country, and they discovered rich, um, you know, you know, rich quantities of copper, and they built these towns. These towns developed originally as as large-scale mines. So the the main towns and the main cities in that part of the country surround these huge industrial mines which uh, are the, the economic lifeblood for the whole country. I mean, I have been since the Belgians first started developing mining there. Now, obviously, over the past 
50, 60, 70 years, the country has gone through uh, a series of terrible uh, economic and political um, crises. And in, in, in the process of that, um, the, the economy at various points, um, well, particularly from the 80s and 90s onwards, the economy really collapsed and the industrial mining sector collapsed. And um, partly in, well, in response to that, a lot of people with the tacit encouragement of first President Mobutu and then his successor, President Kabila, started uh, what we, we call today artisanal mining, um, which means individuals with their own shovels digging underground and collecting the minerals for themselves um, to make a living. The impact on that is quite extraordinary. It involves hundreds of thousands of people across the country. In cobalt mining, we think it's about 200,000 people are, are involved. This is a part of Kolwezi City. Um, and in 2014, it's an area called Kasulo. It's a residential, it's a middle-class neighborhood. And in 2014, someone, um, well, a charity, an international NGO, was helping them dig a, a water well. And when they were digging this water well underneath their homes, they discovered they were sitting on a seam of, um, um, of cobalt or carrying cobalt. And in the next few months, um, these houses became a mining area. And each of those orange squares is a large tarpaulin which covers the tunnels that people dig underground. And they dug underground. It was all completely unmechanized. Um, they, these are hand-dug, unregulated, illegal tunnels in which cobalt is mined. Um, we put a camera on one, 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 one miner, and he went down 50 meters and filmed underground. And um, you can see there's nothing in the way of safety equipment apart from their torches. Um, there are no boots, no gloves, no face masks, no helmets. There's nothing to support the tunnels to prevent collapses. And in the rain, collapse, um, these tunnel collapses are very common. No one has any figures or statistics. No one knows how many accidents there are, how many people die in these tunnels. Um, but they are uh, widespread. Um, the, 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 the fact they're not wearing face masks or, 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 or nothing to protect uh, what they're breathing, that's... that's exposing these miners to life-threatening uh, disease. There's cobalt dust can cause um, a, uh, a disease called hard metal lung disease. So anyway, it's dangerous. They're risking their lives to scrape a living under underground. And then on the surface, what we found and others have found as well is the presence of many children, thousands of children who uh, work in this area here the boys are um, uh, sorting the stones. Um, a, lot of s a lot of rocks are just left on the surface, so they come and collect the little, little bits, the scraps, which they can then sell. Um, you know, the, the work that even if they're not going underground, these children, in some cases as young as seven, uh, ex are, are exposed to you know, what the ILO would term the worst form of child labor. Um, some of the children who I spoke to uh, described how they were also exposed to physical abuse. I mean, they had been beaten up by security guards, by adult miners who then came and stole um, the cobalt that they spent all day collecting, these little stones they spent um, collecting. And um, 
to put it in perspective, you know, the reason why they're doing this is not is 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 really to is really to stay alive. Um, the, the 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 kids we spoke to said that they 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 spent all day working to collect these stones so that at the end of the day they could afford you know one meal. Um, there's um, there's a Catholic organisation which has established a school for the children of Kilwazi and rescues them from the mines, and uh, thousands of children. Well, it's gone up to about 2,000 kids now go to this school. The thing which motivates them to go to this school is that the nuns also provide them with a plate of rice and beans uh, at lunchtime, and that's enough. That's you know that's enough for them to give up to stop this work because it is really about uh, survival for them. But the point is that the cobalt that is mined in these unregulated, difficult, dangerous, exploitative conditions then enters the global market through these buying houses. Um, this, is, this is one which was under construction when, when we were there. It's very difficult to film or, or talk to people here because it's so heavily um, monitored and guarded by um, the uh, intelligence agency, the Congolese security forces. Um, but this is Swahili letter cobalt, which means bring us your cobalt. And it's, it's an open, unregulated market where people can come and sell their sacks of cobalt. Um, you know, no questions asked about its provenance. And our, the, you know, the situation around the artisanal mining was, was quite well known. And there were obviously other NGOs there. It was UNICEF it was in this part of the country, but no one had really established the supply chain. No one knew what happened after this stage, who, who, who bought this stuff. Um, and so, you know, colleagues and I in this Congolese organization we work with you know, literally followed trucks that came and bought the cobalt from here. And we knocked on doors and we uh, talked to various people in the government um, off the record to try and establish what then happened. Uh, what we found was that the major buyer was a Chinese company called Congo Dongfang Mining, which in turn sent the cobalt to China and its parent company, Huayu Cobalt, which is the world's largest producer of cobalt, cobalt um, materials, chemicals, which are then used in batteries. Um, and so the supply chain goes from, from the DRC to China, then off into battery manufacturers, which are mainly in, in Asia, South Korea, Japan, and China, and then, and then around the world. Um, and then through looking at um, various public documents, uh, financial filings, and what companies had listed on their websites, and then through uh, contacts that we had with the companies themselves, this is the supply chain that we, we mapped. Um, the thing is, it's actually not that complicated. You mentioned um, the, the garments or... or um, person who introduced, introduced me mentioned the garment industry in Bangladesh, and I worked on that previously. The garment supply chain is very complicated in comparison. Here there are relatively few steps between Apple, <laughs> Apple, Samsung, and the world's largest tech companies, and um, Congo Dongfang Mining, Huayu Cobalt at the top, and these mines. But what we then found from writing to these companies was that none had conducted human rights due diligence on their cobalt. Um, sourcing. None of them knew where it came from. Some of the companies actually um, gave us uh, inaccurate information about where they'd got their cobalt from. Um, 
So, you know, in in through this failure to 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 conduct this due diligence, to to understand where their cobalt was coming from, these companies have got themselves into a position in which they are contributing to these human rights violations. They're profiting from what is essentially a cheap source of cobalt. It's cheaper than cobalt mined by Glencore, say, in an industrial mine. Um, and they're encouraging the expansion of these artisanal mines. We've known, we know that in the last few years, with the increase in demand for electric vehicles, that um, you know, the, 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 the scale of artisanal mining in the DRC has, has increased. So what's Amnesty International calling for? Well, obviously, we have recommendations for states and for the companies. It starts with the DRC government. They're, the primary, they're primarily responsible for the human rights violations taking place there, the failure to regulate these mines, um, the failure to protect the children. That's ultimately their responsibility. Um, since we issued these first recommendations, there has been progress in the DRC, and the government has announced, announced uh, last summer I think it was last summer, that um, it was removing all children from the mines, which, is, which in itself is a, is a good thing. It's a very centralized state, so it's good that the central government announced that, but implementation is obviously the challenge. The home state governments, the governments of the companies in the supply chain, you know, Amnesty International you know, for many years has called for mandatory human rights due diligence for, 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 for states like Norway to pass laws that, that make human rights due diligence mandatory. And then for the companies themselves to follow the international guidance which is out there, the OECD has developed very clear guidance on uh, responsible sourcing of minerals from um, high-risk countries like the DRC. Uh, these companies should follow this guidance. And then take remedial action. Obviously the companies we've identified such, such as Apple, Microsoft, Renault and the others They've, all, they've been profiting from these human rights violations, so they can't just pull out. They need to be involved in the solution. Since we've, we did this work, which started in 2016, there have been some positive developments. Um, there have been a number of industry-led initiatives which have been formed uh, in the wake of our report, and also, I mean, primarily because of the campaigning that uh, amnesty activists and, and members have done around the world and also the, the, the sort of the media coverage that our work has, has, has garnered. It's obviously a big challenge to the, um, the reputations of, of companies which present themselves as, you know, as, as, as ethical companies. Um, and, um, but even in China, we, we saw the Chinese um, Chamber of Commerce for, for mineral companies playing a leading role in working with the OECD in, in setting up um, the Responsible Cobalt Initiative, which brought together Western um, downstream companies with those Chinese companies which dominate uh, the middle of the supply chain, including Huayu Cobalt, which is the main smelter. So this is all, this is all progress. Recently, we've been done a lot of work with the London Metal Exchange, which is the main um, financial exchange for, uh, you know, amongst other minerals, cobalt. Um, and they, too, are now bringing in or obliging the companies, including Chinese companies, which list on the exchange, obliging them to conduct um, due diligence. So I think you know what this is. Th there's been very little pushback. You know, in other bits of our work on corporate accountability, we get huge pushback, and and here we haven't so much. Um, you know, I th and I, I I see this as all evidence that 
the idea of, of you know, the need for companies with su complicated supply chains or, 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 or less complicated supply chains anyway to, to conduct human rights due diligence is becoming, is becoming mainstream, really. Um, we've done, you know, quite a lot of feedback, uh, sorry, follow-up on companies, the individual companies themselves. This is a bit out of date. So I would say Microsoft and Renault have now gone from the no action taken higher up this, thanks to the activities of Amnesty uh, campaigners around the world. Um, the Renault one was amazing. Um, we, we, um, our, <laughs> our, campaigners started ca our campaigners around the world started their, their campaigning, and in Spain, they put out, Amnesty colleagues put out a video, in, uh, in Spain put out a video um, uh, really attacking Renault and, a, and a, an initiative that Renault electric vehicle, anyway, an initiative that Renault was doing in, in Madrid. And pretty much the next week, Renault was on the phone asking us for a meeting and since then has published information about their supply chain. Um, you know, a key issue, a key point about, you, you know, due diligence is that it's not a box ticking exercise that, that, that it may not be a perfect final destination, but it's a process which companies should follow. And so, you know, we're seeing companies moving up, moving up this and making progress towards the top. And that's, that's, that's good. I mean, I think some of the feedback we've had from, from companies is, you know, we will never satisfy you. You know, you know how, can we, how can we achieve 100% on this? And that's not really possible, but at least there's a degree of progress. Finally, what are the challenges? Consumer pressure can obviously can only go so far, which is why it's so important that governments do um, pass laws on, on due diligence. Um, the most important one, I, th I think as well, is, is translating, a lot of these are connected to translating the actions that companies can take in due diligence to actually driving positive change on the ground. And there is a risk with any of this of unintended consequences. You know, one of those clearly being that children are removed from the mines, but they're not put into schools. Um, that this is a challenge that you know civil society, the Congolese government, and the companies themselves need to work together on to um, to <coughs> ensure that, yeah, that as I say, the due diligence really does lead to an improvement in the lives of the miners and and, and the children in particular. So I will wrap up. Thank you. take from that that activism works and that we need to continue demanding that all the, uh, everyone we deal with in the businesses have uh, open um, delivery lines. Now I will continue and give the word to Luis Jardim who's a researcher at the University of Rio de Janeiro. He will give us completely fresh information about the situation on the ground in Brazil, where we know that the risks taken every day by human rights defenders and environmental activists are getting bigger and bigger each day. So we are very interested to hear what you have to say. Thank you. And also for those of you on Twitter or Instagram and or other social media, we have the hashtag it's long and it's Norwegian. Bear with us. <laughs> Hi, good morning, everyone. 
Hello, I'm Luis from Brazil, from the University of State of Rio. I'm here to present a little bit of Idro in Brazil. Actually, Idro working in Amazon. So Idro have been in Amazon for um, 40 years, working in mining and now in also in the changing industry, the transformation industry. And we are going to see some of the social and environmental conflicts involving Idro in the Amazon, the Brazilian Amazon. Well, Idro is a very important today. It's a very important company today in Amazon. And it's here. No, it doesn't work. Here in MRN. So it's it's the first company where Idro starts to work. It has a very small percentage of the shareholder, 5%, but it buys most of the production of this company. Here, the Bausicht is produced, and also here in Juruti by Alcoa. Hydro always has uh, Paragominas mine that before was from Valley, and also is the main owner of Albras and Lano Norte, who is the companies who are the industries who transform bauxite into alumina and aluminum. So the bauxite come from MRN, goes by river and stop here in Barcarena, and here they are transformated in alumina and aluminum. Or it comes from mine pipes straight to, straight to Barcarena. Well, Idra is a very important actor in the aluminum industry now. Uh, it's represented 30% of the production of bauxite, but also is 5% owner of the main producer, MRN, and also by 45% of its bauxite. Idra also is the main producer of aluminum in Brazil and is the main producer of aluminum in Brazil. So we are talking about a huge company, a very important company for the aluminum industry in Brazil. In the following decade, the last decade actually, uh, this company has been increasing the production. So Hydro has been producing more and more Bauxite here and here, and also alumina here. So to produce the alumina, you need bauxite. So it's important to open a new mine that is in the beginning of the 2000 uh, decades. And this company here, MRN, is a little bit older. It's from the 70s and the period of the dictatorship in Brazil. So a lot of conflicts going on science this time. And here, the Alunorte is transforming bauxite and alumina, and it's always increasing the production. Well, Hydro also have interest in, is very interested in areas to mine. Some of them are being explored already. Some of them is going to be explored and others are in research, uh, geological research going on. 
So different companies have around a thousand or almost two thousand uh, kilometer squares of areas to research or to explore or to expand mining. So it represents half size of Denmark. It's a quite big area or actually it's the subsoil we're talking about, it's not the, the land. It's the subsoil that Hydro has interest in. So it's a huge area in Amazon that Hydro is interested or are operating in it. This one is the first big uh, impact in the Amazon. It's one of the biggest impacts already done in Amazon. It's called Batata Lake. Uh, in the beginning of operation of MRN, uh, the MRN put your waste in the straight in the lake for 10 years. From the 79 to 89, the waste was put straight here. This picture is two years ago. The, wa uh, the waste is still there. It's very difficult to build up something over it. It's very difficult to replantate over it. It's a scientific challenge nowadays. No one ho knows how to, how to handle with it. So mining waste is a very big problem for these companies, for people who is living there also. We have been working some data from the Pastoral Land Commission, CPT, CPT that have been doing for a long time uh, data on conflicts, land conflicts in Brazil. And in the last 15 years, CPT started to follow the mining conflicts in Amazon and in Brazil, but mainly in Amazon. And we got the data and we found out that Hydro is, that's a quite new company operating by himself in Brazil. It's like, it's important to say that Hydro started to operate by themselves um, not more than 10 years, but it's already the sixth position in the companies involved in conflicts in Brazil, mining conflicts in Brazil. Well, it's losing for to San Marco, of course, yeah. All, everybody here knows that San Marco had a dam who came down, killed people, and also Valley, that's the bigger mining company in Brazil, so th these two companies are involved in a lot of conflicts, but Hydro, it's not, uh, it's not to be generated with 3% of this whole conflict involving mining in Brazil. Actually, last year, Hydro was the second place in, in conflicts and mining in Brazil, with 32 conflicts. 15% of the conflict uh, was 200, almost 200. And Hydro had 32 conflicts, mostly involving the possible linkage of the tail dams in Barcarena. Of course, it loses to San Marco that the conflict had been still happening in Brazil. Well, and whose conflicts coming, uh, who, who is fighting against or who is suffering in the conflict with Hydro. It's mainly traditional people. 
mainly people who lives by the rivers. So the water is the main thing to, is the main way to go and also the main living area. Uh, so the water is a big issue. But it's these people who live by the river, the ribeirinhos, and also uh, the black communities, rural communities, the quilombolas. And here is uh, a case, the MRN case, that Idro buys most of the bauxite on it. And here is the the dam, which is very close, like 400 kilometers from a community. So the community is very scared and preoccupied about um, what can happen with them if this dam come down. It's not very high, but if it's come down, it's going to contaminate this lake, which is very important to fishing and very important to their lives. And also, MRN is operating, it's, it's operating inside of a national uh, forest. It's not illegal, it's legal, uh, but it's a very sensitive place. It's a very sensitive area, Amazon area. And in the planning, in the managing planning of this area, it's uh, the zone to mine, that mine can operate, it's not operating yet, but where mine can operate represents 32% of this uh, national forest. So one third of the national forest destined to mining uh, in the middle of Amazon. It's a very preserved area. The other issue we have in this area is also from the conflicts between the quilombolas, the black rural traditional people, and the companies. In the 70s, the conflict was much stronger. The black people needed to give space to the mine to get in. Well, it was during the, the dictatorship in Brazil, so there was no talking going on. It was, well, get out, I'm putting the mine here. And after that, uh, the company starts in the last years to talk a little bit more with the traditional people, doing some social projects as well. But uh, the first consultation for the communities to operate to this, to the mine operate close to the black communities was only last year. Uh, if you can see here, we have a mine operating here, Monte Branco, that's inside a Quilombola territory. It's not titulated yet, but have, it's been titulated in the last two years. And this area is operating, oh, have a license since 2013. And it didn't have the, the consulting to the Quilombolas. So we don't have consulting for the Quilombolas to operate close to the areas for the whole uh, operation mining or whole the, the whole complex. And these ones are the tailing dams in MRN. Um, they are 25 now. Um, different kinds, different risk, different uh, impact if they come down. So uh, most of them are middle, impacts, but we have here two of them who are high impacts if they come down. 
and also they can they are putting in risk 300 workers who work very close to the dam so the studies who also the company did says that they, if it come down it's going to an area where 300 workers from the mine from the mining are working and also can pollute as we saw before the traditional area the quilombolas area Here we have another case, this Barcarena case, where <coughs> Hydro has Aldo Norte and also Albras. Uh, it's a picture from the possible linkage from the dam in 2018. But Barcarena, it's a huge problem in Brazil. Like, it's not only Aldo Norte is operating there. It's many and many companies operating and making a lot of environmental and social impacts in the area. We have calculated uh, that 22 incidents, environmental illegalities in 2000 to now. And seven of these incidents are involving Alonorte. And mainly when Alonorte was from Valley, but it's important to say in 2008, um, Hydro sent not treated water straight in the river. So still, uh, not only Hydro and other knowledge is a big problem in Barcarena, but also other companies, other mining companies and others, uh, the port companies, a lot of companies, w it's, it's uh, impacting the environment as well. And another problem there is what people already said. It's the um, leaders, the environmental leaders and the social leaders have been treated and killed in the area. These leaders have been saying that the hydro have been contaminating, but also they have a huge land problem there. These areas are not demarcated. So the land conflicts is the main issue and make a lot of conflicts with the government, but with other actors in the area. So uh, in 2017 and 2018, we have two leaders killed in uh, close to the operation area of Idro. So it's important to see uh, that it's a very bad environmental to business. It's a very violent environmental to business. And also, uh, we have three women who have been treated, and people is in front of the houses, following them. So they are scared about their family, and no one ho knows who wants to kill them, so, or f what can happen the next days or the next years. Also, it's important to say that in the beginning of this year, Idro sued uh, a researcher who made a report against Idro, saying that Idro was contaminating the rivers last year. Well, maybe it's the opposite of the reports of Idro have been doing. That's okay. That's 
science, uh, different informations and different analysis and hypotheses. But uh, the court rejects hydro suit. That's important that well, it's not uh, only the research we are talking about. We are, about, we are talking about someone putting a researcher in a position, not his institution, but the, the researcher itself had been sued. Uh, so it's, a, it's not a e equally a environmental, a good environmental business, like fight against national institution, national researchers who are trying to solve environmental problems. Well, and how is the situation in the places where Idro is operating? The social situation. Remembering that we are talking about three or four decades of mining or industrial aluminum industry in Amazon. And we have here the HDA from Barcarena, from Orichimina, and from Paragominas three places where Hydro is operating. In comparison to Brazil, it's lower, a lot of lower. Uh, if you get here the average income in dollars in 2010 uh, per month, we can see like Orishimina, uh, each people and a family lives with $185 a month, and the median in Brazil is 435. And also we can see uh, the percentage of low-income population who has half of the, middle, the, the minimum wage in Brazil. And we can see uh, in Orishimena, almost 70% of the population are in this situation poor situation. Well, it's very less than the median in Brazil, 34. In these places, we can get a very huge and high uh, population growth rate. Uh, or when we have an industry, when we have mining, people is coming there to work. And the municipality cannot handle it. It's it's very fast growing, and the pressure, pressure over land, pressure over social uh, service. So it's the uh, social impacts in the areas are very, very huge. Well, some recommendations. Uh, it's important to show uh, some locals in the future the future locals who is going to build this area. So uh, it's important in this moment where the legislation in Brazil, the environmental legislation in Brazil is being uh, probably changed in the next years by the government. It's important to Hydro to work better than the laws. Uh, it's, it's important to follow the laws, but it's important to now that they are deregulating the law, operating over the law with another uh, kind of standards. It's also a very conflictive place, also, of course, but 
we need to find a new way to to make transparency uh, the companies after f four decades three decades they don't have credibilities in the locals i think it's it's quite common and 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 simple to understand but we need to find different ways maybe and also to monitoring water because they never know if the water is clean or not to drink or to use or to or to swim so it's important uh, to make n new types of transparencies maybe with with researchers uh, that their own community will ride hide well and it's also important that hydro and other companies look after the leaderships in the area, um, protecting them. If the government don't do, make a way to the government do, because it's important to make them, uh, or to leave them alive, to get a better environment there. And also, um, it's important to exchange the type of pudding waste the tail dams are not a solution because we saw Batata Lake. After uh, 40 or 30 years of Batata Lake, it's the, the, the waste still there. After 30, 50 years of tail dams, the waste will still there. When mine finish, the waste, the waste will still there inside of a national forest inside of the Amazon environmental. So uh, it's also important to make new studies because we never saw a study working with 30 and 40 years of impact. How was this impact in the community? How was this impact in Barcarena after 30 and 40 years of development? So it's important to us to make a huge study about the aluminum impact in Amazon. And the finish it, it's important now in, in this context where the government's not, uh, is not going to implement social and traditional laws, it's important to demarcate, make a way to demarcate their lands and also to consult in them for each, each uh, environment impact or project. Well, thank you very much. And uh, the third introduction we will hear today is from, I was about to see, say the other side, but we will give Hydro the opportunity to say something about their work on corporate social responsibility. So I will hand the floor over to Elisa Must, who's the CSR manager in Hydro. Give her a hand, please. Thank you so much. Thank you all. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Louise. Um, I didn't bring any slides, uh, but I'm really happy to be here and talk to you about what we do as a company to act responsibly. We're 113 years old. We have 35,000 
includes just 40 countries. And we have, you've already seen parts, very well presented parts of our organization and our production. So we're prepping all the way from the bauxite mining via hydropower pr production, smelting, and all the way to the end product, all across the aluminum value chain. And this is exposes us to human right risks and human right issues, clearly. We're committed to respecting and supporting the human rights of all that are potentially impacted by our operations. Not so tall. <laughs> Sorry about that. So we base our conduct on the UN Declaration of Human Rights, the UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights, the OECD Framework, and others. And this provides the platform for how we run our own business, but also for our CSR initiatives in the supply chain and in local communities and in joint ventures. And today I wanted to focus on local communities and particularly Brazil, naturally, uh, and the topic how to operate and manage human rights in complex and weak environments. We have a long-standing partnership with Amnesty. Uh, we've collaborated with the Danish Institute of Human Rights since 2011. We've done several human rights mappings uh, and we're conducting a full thorough human rights due diligence in Pará, Brazil, uh, this year. And we find that so important that we put it on the C CEO scorecard. So it's clearly very important to us to follow these international standards and to do our due diligences. It creates the basis for what we do. Still, while doing this, um, we also know that in conflict-affected states and in weak environments, it isn't um, uh, straightforward to identify your impacts. And it isn't straightforward to implement remedies to adverse impacts. And it isn't straightforward to actually define where your responsibility starts and where it ends. So most of all, we as a company, we navigate after our strong recognition that we can only succeed as a company if the communities around us also succeed. And that becomes our guiding line and our um, compass for action. So then the main question becomes, how can we contribute to social development and the respect of human rights in complex environments? And I would like to bring one example of how we do that today. Not gonna cover everything we do, but bring you one example. But I'd like to provide some background first. And I think Louise presented very well uh, our operations in Brazil. So the, you've, you've seen where we are. Um, so um, we buy, bauxite from MRN. We have a 5% owner share, but we take 45% of the bauxite. We operate a bauxite mine inland in Paragominas. And then we have the smelter and the alumina refinery along the Pará River in Bacarena. And as you've already also heard, the state of Pará is underdeveloped. Um, and I could give you some example. Less than 30% have access to proper sanitation, 5% take third-year education. There are more than 40% teenage pregnancy rates. That's higher than Sub-Saharan Africa. 
Um, and we see one of the highest levels of violence in the world. So basically what we see is development indicators on par with developing countries and violence levels on par with conflict states. And that's why I call these uh, complex environments and weak states. It's very different to, the, to, uh, to this, for instance, the south of Brazil. And I'd like to say that we don't think that this is a business-friendly environment. Then I'm back to our notion that we can only succeed if the communities around us succeed as well. It's not business-friendly at all. And I'd also like to attach a comment to your, uh, to your, um, uh, to your comments on the threats uh, towards people and the communities. We also hear about threats, but those that we hear about, uh, are, are about are from people within the communities being scared of other people in the communities, people in the communities being scared of other association, being threatened by others. I've actually received requests from other organizations supporting human rights, if we could take our armed guards and protect some of the people in Bacarena. We don't have any armed guards in Bacarena, and it's not a role to go out with any armed guards to protect anyone. Um, that, that I think we all agree to. But people are being threatened. And they're scared, and there's a lot of conflict. And it's not only conflict. So this is conflict between groups, it's conflict within groups. It's conflict between groups and organizations and associations. We've mapped close to 50 local communities around our plant in Bacarena. And they have fights in between themselves. They don't agree to how to do things. So it's super complex. And really entering into that complex conflict environment without actually exacerbating conflict, but being a catalyst for Reducing conflict level is clearly something we see, look at with, uh, with um, a great, great amount of respect because it's not easy. But we're, we're attempting to because we think that's right. So following the heavy rainfall in mid-February last year, uh, the whole region was flooded and this created fear in the local communities of overflow from our bauxite residue areas. And even though um, the uh, federal environmental agency, IBAMA, and the state environmental agency, SEMAS, has confirmed that this did not happen, some people still think, think it did. Uh, and we should state, as Luis also correctly said, that we did release partly untreated rainwater. And we should that is serious enough. It should not have happened. Uh, but we cannot document any environmental impact from that. In the communities then close to the plants, um, the combination of lack of sanitation and shallow wells uh, led to contaminated drinking water and to people getting sick. We provided healthcare. Uh, we had them take tests. We know that what they were suffering from was E. coli and other sanitation-related diseases. Uh, but many of them connected this to us understandably enough. Um, we have been distributing drinking water to these communities since the rainfall, not because we see that, that, that this was our impact, because we, but because we want to improve and we want to be a good neighbor. 
and we've committed to working for a permanent water solution for these communities. This raises new dilemmas though, uh, because many of these settlements are illegal and the governments want, government wants them removed. And that's just one example of the complexities that we face when putting in place mitigating actions. So back to the notion and the fact that we can only succeed as a company if the communities around us succeed and if people trust us and support us. In Brazil, we clearly saw that this was increasingly not the case long before the rainfall event in February. And we saw that we didn't sufficiently succeed with our CSR efforts. So this was a key driver for us to um, revise our global CSR strategy and our CSR approach in Brazil. So in 2017, we, we established, after consulting internal and external stakeholders, we established Sustainable Development Goal 4, Education, 8, Decent Work and Economic Growth, and 16, um, Peace, Justice and Strong Institutions as our priority areas. And we've committed globally to um, contribute to quality education and capacity building for 500,000 people from 2018 to 2030, encompassing all these priority areas. And we expect many of those to come in Brazil. Um, and all of these priority areas are important to Brazil, but particularly number 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions. In weak societies uh, like Bacarena, standalone social investments, as you all know, often fail. Paragominas, where we have the bauxite mine inland, is a relatively stronger municipality. It's not perfect either, but it's relatively stronger than Bacarena. And what we saw was that similar investments that we made succeeded in, in Paragominas, but failed in Bacarena. So, for instance, we invested in a water treatment plant in Paragominas, and it's still there. It's being maintained by the municipality. It's been taken care of, and it's still providing services to the, to the people. In Bacarena, we invested in a water treatment plant, and it took 14 days, and all the parts were stolen. So we needed to take a different approach. And we took as point of departure um, research and practices, leading practices that you're all aware of, that points to local ownership and participation by communities, by academia, by academia that doesn't agree with us, by local government um, and civil society and so on, and structures that facilitate collaboration and development. Those can pave way for social change in, in complex environments like this. And that's what we want to be a catalyst for, uh, with what we call the Sustainable Bacarena Initiative, that we see as an independent platform for sustainable development, and we foresee that in the future it will be a permanent structure, legal, its own legal uh, entity with a permanent, permanent staff as well, independent to Hydro, but funded by Hydro. And we want to bring together all actors in Bacarena so that they can drive change together with us in this initiative. It will be developed over time. Um, and we aim then to bring these stakeholders together to discuss, prioritize, and decide on critical issues in Bacarena, increase capabilities to deal with conflict and engage in dialogue, 
and strengthen the ability of local actors to drive social change and sustainable, together, uh, sustainable development together with us. And then we've committed to investing in the change initiatives developed by this initiative once they start coming. Currently, this is in a pilot phase um, before we get a permanent structure and we have a range of facilitators hired to establish it for us. And they have broad experience with conflict transformation and working in complex environments. It's an in innovative approach that we're learning from other initiatives in Brazil and uh, in other mining areas of the world. And it's challenging and it's complex and, and I could uh, stand here for a long time talking about the various dilemmas we meet. Uh, and it takes time to build trust and to actually involve all those actors that we think are important to make this a successful initiative, which includes those that don't necessarily agree with us. And I was talking at a similar event in Bergen yesterday, and one of the first things that people confronted me with after I talked about this was, but you cannot take over the role of the state. No, we can't, and that's so true. Uh, so that, and that's one of the balancing acts that we have to really take into account and look at all the time, because we cannot just stand and watch, but and we have to do something, but we cannot go too far either. So that's something that we will work on in the years to come. Um, in hindsight, it's very easy to see that we should have done more and changed our approach before we did. And the February event showed us that we, there weren't many people out there who wanted to stand up and help us and support us. And now we've increased our efforts. Uh, we need to build trust and the SBI, Sustainable Background Initiative, is just one element of that. And we're focusing on um, three basic pillars. It's how we run our operations, having full control of the integrity of our plant inside the fence so that no one uh, should be in doubt or be scared of what the effect of our operations should be outside the fence. Outside the fence, it's all our stakeholder engagement and dialogue and our social programs from smaller voluntary actions that are very concrete and short term to longer social investments that we run ourselves as part of the CSR initiatives. And then longer term, it's the SBI. And I'm say, and it's so crucial for us to balance all of these issues, to put it together to full picture and to balance the short term and the long term, because I can tell you that the people in Barcarena are not happy with the situation. They haven't been for many, many years, and they won't change now, not 10 years ahead. So that's why we have to really look into what we can do short term as well. We're doing this because we believe it's right. Uh, and because business cannot succeed in societies that fail. And back to the overall topic of this meeting today, um, we're already being held accountable by our stakeholders to act responsibly. And we have committed to international standards to do so. Uh, and we welcome le legislation that hold us ac accountable too, and that hold others accountable as well. We think they should build on international standards and the frameworks that are already in place uh, so that it can also lift those other companies uh, that haven't even com uh, committed to the international standards. 
and we would really like to be part of the discussions of how this should look so that we can contribute to make it relevant. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Elise. And this concludes the English part of this seminar. Uh, vi bytte til norsk, fordi nu er det klart for panelsamtale. Vi har fått et uh, innsyn i mange av utfordringene og de gode grunnene for uh, hvorfor vi må få på plats nye tiltak for att gjøre noe med menneskerettighetsansvaret til næringslivet. Og jeg vil... Uh, i ordet videre til Kari Asheim fra Regnskogfondet, som skal dra oss gjennom en panelsamtale om både læring fra andre land, men også hvilke type tiltak som er på vei i Norge, og som vi ønsker oss. Vær så god. Tusen takk. Tusen takk. Og tusen takk for gode innlegg. Eh, vi har jo hørt her nå eh, at de selskapene som vi kjøper våre mobiltelefoner fra og, og elbiler fra, høyst sannsynlig er involvert i barnearbeid og menneskerettighetsbrudd i koboltgruver i Kongo. Og vi har hørt at regnskogen i Amazonas ødelegges blant annet av gruvedrift, og de menneskene som bor og er avhengig av den skogen fordrives. Noen trues, noen drepes, og eksponert i dette er altså vårt eget norske hydro. Så det vi skal gjøre nå, nå har vi lært mye, vi skal gå litt dypere i det, og så skal vi lete etter løsninger. Hvordan kan norske selskaper og norske forbrukere eh, ikke bare unngå å bidra til menneskerettighetsbrudd og miljøødeleggelse, men aktivt bidra til å endre de leverandørkjedene, sånn som de er i dag, som skaper disse menneskerettighetsbruddene og miljøødeleggelsene. Så med oss i dag har vi et veldig godt panel, vil jeg si. Det er eh, først fra Hydro, eh, Kirsten Margrethe Hovi. Du er leder for eh, ekstrafinansiell rapportering. Du kan komme og sette deg ned, du skal få ordet snart. Så er det leder, nei, generalsekretær i Elbilforeningen, Kristina Bu. Vær så god sitt. Og så er det to menneskerettighetseksperter fra de som organiserer dette. Det er Susan Feig Kelly fra Regnskogfondet. Og Beate Ekløve Slydal fra Amnesty. Vær så god. Gi dem en applaus. Vi har jo to litt ulike saker her, så vi vil begynne med den ene, og så vi går litt inn i den andre, og så vil vi trekke det hele sammen på de 20 minuttene som er i en arrangement. Eh, og da tror jeg begynner jeg med, med deg med Hydro, Kirsten Margrethe Hovi, og det spørsmålet som kanskje mange sitter med, selv om det har litt mer, kommet litt mer inn i det i deres eget innlegg, det er, altså for å ta trombet, altså, som vi hørte en del om her, det er altså et, dere er både medeieri og kjøper mye av bauxitten deres i Brasil, fra MRN, som altså driver gruvevirksomhet i regnskogen, i et verneområde, eh, og har planer om å ekspandere for å åpne nye gruver i samme område på bekostning av regnskog, og de menneskene som er avhengig av den skogen. Hvorfor vil dere være med på dette? Eh, som Elise allerede har vært innom, så er det jo mange dilemmaer eh, knyttet til industri generelt, og ikke minst til gruvevirksomhet. Um, som Louise uh, allerede har fortalt, så er jo MRN en uh, gruve som ble etablert allerede på 70-tallet. Um, skulle den vært etablert i dag, så er det vel tvilsomt om den vil bli lagt akkurat der den nå ligger. Når den først ligger der, så er det viktig for oss at vi gjør det beste ut av situasjonen som den er. Um, og det betyr jo også at når vi utvider gruvevirksomheten, 
så må vi følge de retningslinjene vi står for, og som da er i tråd med gjeldende beste praksis på industrisiden. Det betyr ikke at det er lett, men vi gjør som best vi kan. Og som minoritetseier, vi er faktisk en veldig liten minoritetseier i MRN, så føler vi allikevel at vi gjør vårt beste for å påvirke situasjonen. Blant annet... Jeg tenkte å følge opp med å høre hva dere egentlig mener må være på plass for at det blir bærekraftig i Trombetas. At det blir et bærekraftig prosjekt. Ja, altså... Du kan jo si at hva er bærekraftig når du er i regnskogen. Da snakker jeg ikke om regnskogen slik vi har det i Pergominas, hvor området har vært sterkt berørt av menneskelig virksomhet fra lenge før gruven ble etablert, men sånn som det er i MRN. Det aller viktigste er at vi har et forhold til de menneskene som bor og bruker skogen allerede. På mange områder har MRN vært gode på den dialogen opp gjennom årene, og så har det kanskje ikke fungert like bra i noen år. Nå jobber MRN veldig hardt for å få opp igjen den gode dialogen som var tidligere. En annen veldig viktig ting er at vi har en god rehabilitering av de områdene som har vært utsatt for gruvedrift. Og det betyr at alle steder hvor vi har fjernet skogen for å komme frem til bergsittmalmen, så må vi da senere legge tilbake massene og gjenplante. Dette har MRN gjort i nå 40 år. Og hvis man vandrer rundt i skogen der, så får det utrent øye, så er det en skog som ligner veldig på den uberørte skogen. Men vi er jo allikevel klar over at mange av de artene som befinner seg i uberørt skog, de vil det ta i hvert fall hundre år før de kommer tilbake. Vi snakker ikke da om de store artene, de som er de mest synlige, men de ganske små artene, de som lever av trær som har dødd en naturlig død etter mange år i skogen. Da kan jeg slippe til Susan Peikelli fra Regnskogfondet. Kan du si litt om hva Regnskogfondet synes er problematisk med gruvedriften i Trombetas, der Hydro er med? Ja, det kan jeg gjøre. Eller kanskje gruvedrift i Amazonas som sådan. Vi i Regnskogfondet synes jo egentlig at gruvedrift i regnskog, i sårbare regnskog i seg selv, selvfølgelig er problematisk og Altså i sin natur så ekspanderer det jo stadig og fører jo da til ubotelig skade på biomangfold og miljø som du er inne på. Og det kan potensielt ha hundrevis av år før man kommer tilbake til det opprinnelige der man var hvis det noensinne skjer. Det andre som jeg synes er problematisk med Hydro er jo det her som kommer fram i Louis sin presentasjon om at folk blir drept, folk utsettes for trusler og vold på bakgrunn av virksomhet som 
Hydro også er med på. Altså, nå påstår ikke vi at Hydro som utfører de her tingene, absolutt ikke, men Hydro sin virksomhet er med på å skape og forsterke konflikter i lokalsamfunnene, som Elise også da snakker om. Det er mange ulike interesser i de her lokalsamfunnene. Og det som er viktig da, er jo at man har på plass gode konsultasjoner, og det er også viktig, altså FN og FNs spesialrapportør for menneskerettighetsforkjempere sier det, at det viktigste man kan gjøre for miljøforkjempere for å øke deres beskyttelse, er at man faktisk offentlig må gå ut og støtte dem, og si at den jobben som de gjør, det har de rett til å gjøre, selv om de protesterer mot Hydro, så er det deres rettighet. Og noe av det beste Hydro da kan gjøre for de her menneskene og de her sosiale lederne, er å gå ut og støtte dem offentlig på den måten da. Kirsten Mariette Håvi, dere har ikke våpen å beskytte dem med, som dere sa, men kan dere gjøre det? Nei, våpen kan vi ikke beskytte noen med. Det er heller uansett ikke vår rolle. Ordet er jo helt enig i at det er et veldig godt virkemiddel for oss. Og gjennom dette bærekraftsdebarkarena-initiativet, som vi har tatt initiativet til at skal etableres i Barkarena, som Elise var innom, så er det klart at samarbeidet med NGO-er, trekke NGO-er inn i det samarbeidet, er utrolig viktig. Og dermed så kommer også NGO-ene i dialog med hverandre, de kommer i dialog med lokalsamfunnene. Og det er jo helt enig i at det er en god måte å gå frem på. Kort kommentar til Susan, og så skal vi gå litt videre. Ja, jeg tenker at det kan være konfliktreduserende at man involverer de som også utsettes for truslag og er upopulær i de her miljøene. Men jeg skulle bare si en ting til, for det jeg også synes er litt problematisk, spesielt når vi snakker om trombetas, er at Hydro legger stor vekt på det at de bare eier 5 prosent. Når det gjelder oljefondet, for eksempel, så går vi jo ganske kraftig ut mot oljefondet, bare de eier en liten promille av noe som helst når man ser på leverandørkjedene. Og her er det faktisk snakk om at Hydro kjøper nesten halvparten av produksjonen som kommer fra det her firmaet. Så fra mitt perspektiv så virker det jo som at Hydro kan ha en veldig stor påvirkning på virksomheten til MRN, og i større grad bør gå inn og ta ansvar for det som en del av sin leverandørkjede. Ja, Kirsten Margrethe Håvi, vi så jo på bildet her i starten på Louis sin presentasjon, dere er jo store i Brasil. Hva slags innflytelse kan dere ha? Altså, vi er unektelig veldig store i beredskapen per dag, hvor vi har vår hovedvirksomhet. Vi er, som sagt, små i eierandel i MRN, men vi bruker den eierandelen for alt det er verdt, både gjennom påvirkning i styret og gjennom påvirkning i ulike tekniske komiteer som er relevante for de temaene vi nå snakker om. Og det er viktig å forstå at... Situasjonen rundt MRN er ikke fullt så sort-hvitt som det som kanskje er kommet frem gjennom presentasjonen til Louise. MRN jobber nå veldig aktivt på flere linjer. 
De har ett projekt som de kallar bärkraftig territorieprojektet och det tror jag du vill intressera dig väldigt för Susan för det är ett projekt som stöttar invigarna i hela upplandet till MRN och det upplandet är stort är lika stort som som Portugal i i areal men rummet bara 80.000 invigare. Och måten detta projektet stöttar befolkningen på, det är hur de ska kunna organisera sig för att få större påverkan, alltså NGO:er, miljöorganisationer, andra organisationer, hur de ska kunna snacka med myndigheter, hur de ska kunna snacka med med MRN som sällskap. Väldigt bra. Jag måste bara för vi har så kort tid så jag måste bara skulle gärna hört mer om men vi får grava och finna ut mer rätt på. Beate, eh samarbete med med Hydro, eh, Amnesty samarbetar med Hydro och där jobbar också samma regnskogsfond och flera för aktsamhetslovin. Eh, som kan vara en lösning på något av det som Hydro står upp i. Kan du si förklara kort vad aktsamhetslover är och och varför vi menar att det eller dere då menar att det kan vara en uh, till hjälp för Hydro i en sån situation som de är i Brasil och andra sällskaper? Eh handlar om att skulle göra det pliktig för alla sällskaper att företa grundliga riskanalyser av vilken risk de själva löper genom sin egen verksamhet för att bryta mänskligheterna eller ödelägga miljö. Och när den risken är identifierad, sørge för att införa de nödvändiga tiltak för att reducera risken och ha på plats systemer som gör att man gör det möjligt för de det går galt med eller visst det går galt hur man ska hantera det och inte minst ha full öppenhet omkring hela detta löpe som man ska i vareta som sällskap med att skulle företa riskanalyser och i vareta på att risker man själv identifierar. Eh, och det baserar vi på eh, många års arbete på det vi kallar mänskligheter och näringsliv. Amnesty har hoppat i många år med detta eh, och identifierat och dokumenterat en rekke mänsklighetsbrott. Hur är direkt i sammanhang mellan ett sällskapsverksamhet och mänsklighetsbrott? Och vi ser att eh jättefint med masse frivilliga internationella standarder som en rekke sällskaper inkluderat Hydro och andra stora norska sällskaper eh, har tillslutit sig. Men vi ser att det är inte tillräckligt att denna type ordningar är frivilliga. Vi menar det är det vill göra en en väsentlig skill att jag skulle företa denna form för riskanalyser och så vidare som jag nu har har snackat om eh bli bindande för alla sällskaper. Eh, och det är ju Altså man kan ju bara spekulera i, i vilken grad det ville gjort någon skill på backen eh, om vi idag hade haft eh, eh eller en mänsklighetslov för norska sällskaper för för Hydro. Eh, det blir ju spekulation men men eh, har på något sätt inrömmet att det är utmaningar eh, där de är som de inte gott nog har identifierat eh, och gott nog haft en beredskap på att hantera så kan det hända då att dersom man som sällskap vet att det vill bli sanktionerat mot dig. Visst du inte har företagit en god nok identifiering av utmaningen dina och fått en god nok beredskap på plats, att man kanske hade brukt ännu mer resurser på att ivarta detta ansvaret. Det är en spekulation, men vi tror att kanske ville varit en 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 extra pådrivare för Hydro. Vi tror i vart fall att vi är en väldigt viktig pådrivare för väldigt många andra sällskaper som kanske inte är i närheten en gång av Hydro med tanke på att ivarta sitt mänsklighetsansvar. Så HV, där blir ju frågan till er, kan dere være med och vara pådrivare för såna lover också i Norge? Eh, som samlet sett och är flera land som eh, som håller på att införa såna lover, vill skapa en högre tröskel då för hur man kan operera. 
Altså slik vi tolker regnskapsloven og eierskapsmeldingen, og vi som delvis statsselskap, vi er jo underlagt begge, så forstår vi at vi er underlagt de kravene allerede. Og det gjør at vi rapporterer i henhold til regnskapsloven, vi rapporterer i henhold til GRI, vi rapporterer i henhold til FNs Global Compact, men vi rapporterer også i henhold til den britiske loven på moderne slaveri, og tilsvarende på den australske loven. Så alt dette gjør vi allerede. Men se hvordan Hydro går foran for en norsk aktsomhetslov. Hadde ikke det vært fint? Ja, altså vi støtter etikkinformasjonsutvalget og deres arbeid, Samtidig er vi litt undrende til at ikke norsk industri er invitert inn i det utvalget. Vi kan ikke klandre i utvalget for det, for det er jo myndighetene som har utpekt utvalget. Men vi vil fryktelig gjerne bidra der. Vi har gjort alt vi kan så langt for å bidra, ikke fordi vi ønsker at at det man konkluderer på skal bli mindre strengt, men for at det skal bli mer relevant. Tusen takk. Nå må vi slippe til Kristina Bu, for nå ser jeg på klokka mi at vi må rekke å høre på Kristina også. Vi har ti minutter igjen. Kristina Bu, du er generalsekretær i elbilforeningen, og dere representerer altså norske elbilbrukere, ikke bilindustrien, men norske elbilbrukere. Men i tillegg så er dere en viktig internasjonal spillerblikk. Du reiser masse rundt i hele verden på viktige elbilmøteplasser, og sprer det glade budskapet om hvordan vi får til elbil i Norge. Og derfor har jeg lyst til å begynne med det første spørsmålet til deg. Er de problemstillingene som vi har tatt opp her i dag, er de nok debattert på de arenaene som du er på til daglig? Nei. Nei og ja. For å si det sånn, jeg merket jo en endring etter fredsprisen. Men jeg tror nok også det er ganske stor forskjell på Norge og debatten i Norge generelt rundt elektrisk mobilitet og i utlandet. I utlandet er de fem til ti år bak oss i utviklingen, og ofte har konferanser og debattarenaer mest fokus på å diskutere hvordan skal vi få det til, mer enn å ha fokus på problemene. Men det siste halvåret, og spesielt etter fredsprisutdelingen, så har jeg veldig mye oftere opplevd å få spørsmål rundt problemstilling rundt etisk problemstilling knyttet til produksjon av batterier. Og det tror jeg er veldig bra, og jeg tror også at det handler også om at folk som er opptatt av det vil ha svar, rett og slett. Og dette er noe som engasjerer. Dere har jo 70 tusen medlemmer cirka. Dere spør dem mange spørsmål hvert år i en stor undersøkelse. Vet dere noe om hvor opptatt norske forbrukere er av Kongo og gruvedriften der? Ja, og vi har talt på at de er opptatt av det, og spesielt blitt mer opptatt av det, fordi det har blitt mer oppmerksomhet om det i media. Og det handler nok også veldig ofte om at har du kjøpt deg en elbil og tatt det valget, så møter du også fortsatt, selv i Norge, en del motstand fra en del kanter. Og den motstanden kommer veldig fort mot den nye. Vi hadde det samme med biodrivstoff for noen år siden. Elbil skal på en måte løftes til høyere standarder enn bensin- og dieselbiler. 
Og det er, det er jo grejt, men jeg tror også någon føler lite frustration over at ja, men det er mange problemstillinger knyttet til oljeproduktion og gasproduktion og så videre også. Mm. Eh, så det handler nok om at eh, folk vil, ha, vil vite, finne, ja, ha fakta eh, og, og vite vad som foregår. Og så er det ikke noe allreit eh, for forbrukere generelt å, å bli satt i en sånn situation, at du skal forsvare valget ditt, og speciellt på något som er så problematisk som det vi ser i Kongo. Mm. Og det er også derfor vi har engasjert oss i saken og, og tog kontakt med Amnesty for et års tid siden. Eh, for vi har varit oppmerksom på den, denne utfordringen länge. Ja. Amnesty har gjort uh, mange grundiga rapporter på dette nå, og de viser at bilindustrien, de gjør alt for svake på å adressere dette problemet og jobbe for å få oversikt over og kontroll på forhold i egen leverandørkjede. Og selv de beste er jo undermiddels gode på det. Altså, ganske dårlig på det. Eh, hva tenker du, Kristina, om eh, hvordan dere som elbilforening og den første store forbrukerforeningen for elbil, kanskje i verden, som har stor sterk medlemsmasse, hvordan kan dere påvirke industrien? Eh, det kan vi, eh, fordi eh, igjen, Norge er eh, lengst fram i verden når det gjelder eh, salg av elbiler, og det gjør at internasjonal bilindustri eh, kommer til Norge, Jeg møter med veldig mange bilproducenter med folk på toppnivå, som er en litt sånn spesiell situation for en liten, egentlig ganske liten, forbrukerorganisasjon i verdenssammenheng. Eh, og dette er en problemstilling vi, vi bringer til torgs i disse møtene og tar opp med dem. Og det er også derfor vi har satt dette som et viktig tema på den konferansen vi arrangerer denne uken. En stor internasjonal konferanse her i Oslo med 900 deltagere. Halvparten kommer fra utlandet. Um, og der har vi et samarbeid med Amnesty om en session om uh, etisk uh, batteriproduktion og det dit kommer Mark Dummett og skal uh, snakke uh, i tillegg til to europeiske batteriprodusenter uh, og den europeiske batterialliansen. Uh, og det er fordi vi ønsker å, å løfte problemstillingen mm. og vi har også da mange bilprodusenter uh, som, uh, til, som skal snakke på den konferansen her. Så dette, jeg, jeg tror det er, jeg tror det er eh, utrolig viktig at vi som forbrukere sier fra eh, og ber om åpenhet i verdikjeden. Eh, og så opplever jeg nok også at... Eh, Men hører bilindustrien på... Ja, jeg opplever at eh, de gjør det, og at det, og det sier vel også det Amnesty, at eh, det har etter at dere... Det er jo mye takket være Amnesty at, at dette har kommet på dagsorden eh, i større grad, og at det har skjedd mye bare siden det, og, og det er flere eksempler på grep som er tatt, og at det er ganske stor utvikling bare siste året. Veldig bra. Da må jeg gi, og vil gi siste ord til Beate. Eh, kan du både kommentere på hva er Amnestis ambisjoner å få til sammen med elbilforeningen, norske elbilbrukere, og gjerne oppsummere litt. Eh, hva tenker du nå, etter å ha hørt eh, på panelet? Hvor mye kan vi få til med norsk industri og norske forbrukere i det å bedre leverandørkjedene? Mm. Uh, ja, jeg, det er samarbeidet vi har med Elbilforeningen, der jeg ser på som en, en veldig kraftfull og unik allianse vi har. Bare det at Amnesty får lov til å kunne ha en, en synlig og tydelig rolle på denne store konferansen som starter i morgen. Jeg glemte å si at Kumi Naidu kommer også, det glemte jeg. Det at både Amnesty's generalsekretær skal være en av keynote-talerne, og at vår Kongo-etterforsker Mark skal ha en egen session. 
eh, gir oss en helt unik mulighet til å kunne snakke direkte med, med, med industrien. Mm. Bil, eh, bilprodusentene og batteriprodusentene. Eh, en helt tydelig anledning for oss til å på måte, sette søkelys på problemstillingen, men også komme med de konkrete anbefalingene og kravene vi har til industrien. Og kunne bygge videre på en dialog vi allerede har med dem. Sånn sett er jo Elbilforeningen en god partner, fordi de representerer da, eh, noe annet enn det vi gjør, og har da sin troverdighet og sitt innpass i dette miljøet, som vi nå får lov å kunne eh, nytte godt av. Så det er eh, en veldig god allianse, vil jeg si. Um, og ja, vi har tro på at uh, forbrukere kan bidra i dette løpet her, uh, både med tanke på å stille spørsmål når man kjøper sine mobiltelefoner, når man skal gå og leie eller kjøpe en elbil, bare så stille enkle spørsmål, så kan du... Kan jeg få informasjon om, om de batteriene som ligger under pantry på denne bilen? Er, er det barnearbeid som ligger bak det? Kan jeg få noen garantier på det? Sannsynligvis kan ikke en bil forskjellig i Norge gi den garantien, men hvis mange nok av dere stiller det spørsmålet, så går det spørsmålet tilbake til bilprodusentens hovedkontor, som vet at de må kunne svare på dette. Så dette ser vi på som et veldig viktig påvirkningsarbeid over, over tid. Uh, og for å runde litt av med dette med, um, og vi tror at det er i industriens egen interesse også, altså de er opptatt av godt image. Bare, la oss kalle det 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 er, good branding. Uh, og for oss handler det om da at de skal kunne stå frem og si at uh, her uh, kjører man både grønt og man kjører etisk. At det er godt for deres egen branding å sørge for at vi kan si at vi har etiske batterier under pansret i bilene våre. Så vi tror at det er en vinn-vinn-situasjon. Um, dette her med uh, aksomhetslov. Um, litt tilbake til, 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 til Margrethe her. Um, ja, som du sier, dere forstår regnskapsloven sånn som dere gjør. Dere forstår disse andre reguleringene vi har fra før slik dere gjør. Det er ikke alle som forstår dem slik dere gjør. Og det må vi bare være ærlig og åpne på, det er det faktisk ikke. Og det er en av hovedgrunnene til at vi vil at det skal bli en bindende menneskerettighetslov for norske selskaper. Og det handler om å skulle få myndigheten til å være tydelig på hva som er, ikke bare håp eller anbefaling, men som er klare, skal vi si det nå, klare krav til norske selskaper på hva det er som må gjøres. Og at det samles i en tydelig lov som gjør at det er ingen tvil hos noen norsk selskap om hva det egentlig handler om. Hva er forventningen? Men like viktig da fra myndighetenes side å ha et informasjonsløp til siden om som gjør det mulig for de selskapene som da fremdeles for at dette er nytt for dem, for hvordan i all verden skal gjøre dette da. Der må myndigheten ta stort ansvar, og dere har organisasjoner som oss som sitter her i dag og flere i rommet som kan bidra til å gi dem den drive-up de kan få for å bygge de systemene de må ha på plass. All den velviljen er der virkelig, og så er jeg en klar oppfordring til Hydro. Um, for kort stund siden så gikk... Uh, Novartis, som er et av verdens største farmasøyselskaper, dansk sådan, sammen med eh, dansk LO og Amnesty Danmark, sammen i en felles kronikk i Danmark, og bør om å få en dansk aksomhetslov for danske selskaper. Jeg inviterer Hydro, jeg inviterer fagforbundet i Norge, til, sammen med Amnesty og de andre organisasjonene her, til å gjøre det samme som danskene nå, La oss lage en felles kronikk hvor vi sier til norske myndigheter «Dette er det vi forventer at dere skal gjøre». Det var et godt forslag, og det følger vi opp. Da er tida ute. Tusen takk til alle i panelet for at dere kom, og tusen takk til publikum som kom. Og før dere går, så skal Beate igjen få lov å si en liten kort ting. Fordi ikke...
Ikke bare har vi dette veldig viktige og, vil jeg si, bra seminaret her i dag, med viktige og riktige deltakere, og ikke minst alle dere i salen. Men i morgen på Vega, klokken 17.30, så arrangerer Amnesty sammen med Framtid i våre hender nok et seminar, hvor vi først viser filmen Complicit som er en dokumentar fra fabrikker i Kina som lager disse dingsedansene her, og som viser konsekvensene av å stå uten noen form for beskyttelse og lage disse uvurderlige tekniske produktene våre. Hvor farlig det er, og hvor skadelig det er, og mangelen på rettigheter og beskyttelse som de står i. Så først vises altså filmen Complicit klokken 17.30 på Vega i morgen, og så har vi en panelsamtale, blant annet med hun som har laget filmen, med Amnesty og med fremtiden i våre hender. Så kom på det også da vi. Veldig bra. På vegne av alle som står bak dette arrangementet. Tusen takk. God lunsj. Vel hjem.